You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. So excited. One of the best humor writers ever comes on the podcast, talks about humor, his process, his career, what's happening next with humor and AI and social media and all that. But he just finished a novel. It just came out, Swamp Story. It's a great novel. So much fun. He's also written one of my favorite books about the state of Florida called Best State Ever. A Florida Man Defends His Homeland. He's written 50 or so books. Dave Barry, we talk about everything. It's so much fun. Listen to it. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So, Dave, really loved Swamp Story. Thank you. Since I got it an advanced copy, I think maybe I'm the first person to have read it outside your community, including Alan Zweibel, who did not help you at all with this book. <laughs> no, he didn't. Nor with anything else in my life, really. <laughs> Dude, wait, are you really like buddies with Alan Zweibel? Yeah, Alan and I are very close friends. And in fact, uh, we wrote a book together uh, called Lunatics that I was like about 10 years ago, a novel where you know he wrote a chapter, I wrote a chapter, we went back and forth. And it actually got optioned for a movie. And of course, that never never got made because nothing ever does. But then it, it just got optioned again for a movie. So we're now rewriting this screenplay. So, But anyway, Alan and I are, are good buddies. We hang out a lot. And um, I love him. I've read um, one of his books recently. It was a book about humor. It's called Laugh Lines. It was a like a memoir. Because yeah. he's worked, I mean, he's worked with everybody. Yeah, in the it was a lot about business. Gilda Radner. He was part yes. writing partners with her, and he start. He wrote. I didn't know he helped create the Larry Sanders show. Yeah, he was. He and, and Larry and Larry Shandling were very close friends, and that was his job for like I don't know how many years. But that show, which is a great show, that was him and, and Larry Shandling. Yeah, yeah, he, that was one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. I agree, except for Dave's, Dave's World. World. Yeah, <laughs> it was so awkward. Um, the biggest mistake I made was letting them call it Dave's world and having the character be me. The premise was this guy's a humor writer in Miami, but you know, the truth is the kind of columns I wrote were not, they were not stories. They were not, they didn't have a story arc. They didn't have any learning. They, you know, they were just like jokes. And so they were trying to adapt that to a sitcom format where, you know, there's family drama and, uh, beginning, middle, and end, and that kind of thing. And so it was just almost immediately they exhausted all the columns I'd ever written 
that actually would be adaptable to that format. And then it just became a bunch of people in LA, very funny people, but people who had never worked for the newspaper business, writing a sitcom about me, a guy who is in Miami actually writing newspaper humor comms, which is very different from a bumbling dad with a family where wacky things keep happening, which is kind of what they wanted for the sitcom. So it was very different. You know, people would watch this show and they thought I wrote it, that it was in fact reflecting my real life. And it it didn't really at all. In fact, my colleagues at the Miami Herald, particularly my editors, thought it was hilarious because, you know, if you were to actually show what I do during a day, especially when I was writing a newspaper column, it's me sitting in front of a computer. It's unbelievably boring. You know, it's like, it feels like though they were trying to kind of almost do, it was sort of like a cross between Seinfeld and like the early Fox shows like Married with Children, but it was a cross because they don't quite fit together. So Seinfeld really is called Seinfeld. It's named after him, just like Dave's World, based on a guy who's a comedian. You are a humor writer and it's set in your real life. But then they kind of go this bumbling dad route as opposed to like, really telling what's happening to you. I would say, yeah, that's accurate. They were nice. I really liked everybody out there. They always treated me very well. And then they sent me money for doing absolutely nothing, you know? So there was that (laughs) element was pretty great. But it was awkward for me just to have my name attached the way it was because it was was like, it wasn't me. It wasn't my life. But people would see these episodes and and think, you know, that it it was based on something that had happened to me. And toward the end, I, I, you know, I'd missed half the shows. I didn't know what was going on in my, you know, TV shows. It was strange. Seinfeld, of course, eventually Larry David ran out of his own personal material. So every year they would fire all the writers in the writer's room and bring in new writers to replenish the stories. So new writers from New York. I didn't know that. That, Is that true? I did not know that. Larry David had an interesting management style on the set of Seinfeld. First, it was the first show where every major character had to have a storyline. So this way, none of the actors get bored sitting around. And then every year, again, like I said, one thing he would do is is replenish the stories by hiring writers similar to him from New York and had their own stories. So they could have hired more Miami Herald, you know. Yeah. So (laughs) maybe they said, yeah, because there was absolutely no Miami vibe at all to it. You know, I mean, Miami is very kind of unique to itself place. And, and, you know, the people writing this were in LA. So it was, you know, it was not Miami. The depiction of my life was funny. My newspaper colleagues mocked me because the way they would show it was they had to have some representation of what Dave did in this show. And he was a columnist. So the way they would represent the column, besides every now and then very rarely showing him actually sitting in front of a computer, which is really all I did, they would have him holding this manila envelope. And that was his column. Dave, you know, and the editor would go, Dave, where's the column? And he would come running in with the manila. (laughs) And, you know, even (laughs) this was in the 90s, but still, we didn't use manila. Um, We had computers in the 90s. (laughs) you You didn't carry around a manila envelope with your column in it. So the, that was at the Miami Herald. I was, and, you know, when I would come in on those rare occasions, I would actually go in there. People would ask me where, where's your column, Dave? Where's the, you know. Dave, I would think they would uh, include more about quote unquote, Florida man. Like, yeah, well, this was a little early, a little before the real Florida man thing hit. Now, if you were to do it now, this is a good time to do a, a sitcom based in Florida where everything. Like, 
everything's happening here. Everybody thinks we're all insane down here. And and we are, I guess, insane down here. And, well, well um, and you know, speaking of Seinfeld, he once wrote this op-ed in the New York Times trashing me, actually, because I did move down to Florida. And he's like, you know, what's in Florida? And there were Florida newspapers responded to this. But, you know, my response is Florida man's in Florida. <laughs> and and your your novel that just came out, Swamp Story, it's more like almost like a thriller, like a Florida man kind of thriller. Florida man meets thriller story. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's like I wanted it to be, I mean, all of the novels I write are basically Florida books. But um, there is nothing in this book, I contend, that couldn't actually happen in this the state because of the just general weirdness of it. But between the the city of Miami, which is a wild city and lots of different kinds of people live here and the Everglades, which are right directly next to you drive for half an hour from the city of Miami and you're in this just weird natural habitat that is also in addition to being this natural habitat has a lot of strange people kind of living in the back roads and little nooks and crannies that you couldn't have a weirder mixture of places, I don't think, than Miami and the Everglades right next to each other. So the idea with the book was to sort of put those two weird worlds together uh, with with the kind of people who populate each of them. When you start thinking that, how do you then, and you know, it's always interesting doing a podcast about a novel because I don't want to reveal anything, but how do you start <laughs> putting together the components? Of, okay, you think to yourself, Miami meets Everglades. Okay, Weird, wild people in Everglades need a mystery, need romance, need thrills. What's next in your thinking process? <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, I sort of started with um, the, the 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 true genesis of it. There were two things. One was I did a book a few years ago called Best State Ever, which I just drove around Florida and went to tourist attractions, but not Disney World, not the big new ones, the older kind of tackier sleazier roadside attraction ones, or just the strange places. And one of my favorite of those is a place called the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters, which is, it's a shack on Route 41, the old Tamiami Trail, which used to be the main road between Tampa and Miami, and it's sort of been bypassed now by Route 75, more modern road. But this is like in the middle of one, and, and it's, the Skunk Ape is kind of like the Yeti, or the uh, abominable snow. It's not real. It's just something right. that people like to believe is real. And these people, some people claim to have seen it, this thing wandering around out in the Everglades. And the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters does basically the research consists of they sell t-shirts <laughs> for the Skunk Ape. But there's a guy who runs it named Dave Sheely. And I inter- I spent a day with him and went all around it. But it's kind of cool, this little place out here, still surviving, selling t-shirts to tourists going by and Every now and then, somebody comes along who actually believes that there is a skunk ape, and they go out with Dave Sheely. And so, anyway, I, I like that idea. I wanted to include that. In, and then the other thing that got really kind of excited about the Everglades is, I'm sure you're familiar with the Python Challenge. No, you're not. Okay, this is a very Florida, Florida thing. This is why we're just not a normal state. We have this problem with Burmese pythons here. Hundreds of thousands of. These snakes. They from Burma? Like, did someone bring a Burmese snake and it then populated? Yes. What happened was was that people took these things. They should be in Burma. Wherever Burma is, that's where these are supposed to be. They're not supposed to be here. I like how you're off on your geography. I just, I know it's somewhere like Siam is, what used to be Thailand is now. And I don't know what Burma is now, but it's not here. Not around here. Not even Myanmar. 
it is it yeah that's that's very good that you knew that okay well anyway they should be in myanmar they should myanmar pythons anyway people get brought them as as uh pets because people down here like to have really big dangerous stupid pets and then they you know these people ran out of crack or whatever and they went oh my god i'm living with a giant snake here and they let them go they let them go and the snakes love it here love it here they're just like the new yorkers who come down you know they it's just they fit right in and they <laughs> and they reproduce like crazy. Are you accusing me of being like a Burmese python? I'm I I am also originally from New York and, okay. and you and I and the snakes, none of us are paying taxes. We're happy to be here. Right. So anyway, this the snakes are multiplying like crazy. So the state of Florida, about 10 years ago, started this program called the the Python Challenge, which was and when I first heard it, I thought this it can't be serious. Basically inviting Everyone who wants to, to come down and kill our pythons, just hunt them, find them, cut them, kill them. And then, and uh, I wrote a bunch of columns about the Python challenge because it just still cracks me up. If you go to the official page of the Python challenge, they have all these rules about how you're allowed to hunt the python, how you're supposed to kill the python. You're not supposed to cut off the head of the python. James, if you ever kill a python, do not do it by cutting off the head. You know why? Why? Because according to the Florida State Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, even when you cut it off, the python brain's still working. Now, they don't say what it's thinking. <laughs> but it's, apparently, this is cruel and inhumane to the python. So you have to put this thing against the head in a bolt thing or whatever and blow its brains out. And that's how you kill the python. Oh anyway, so they've been doing this for years. And there's like cash prizes and everything. And all these people come down. And they are exactly the kind of people you might expect would come you know, who have time, could take time out of their schedule to go down to the Everglades and tromp around in the muck looking for these pythons, which are very hard to find. Anyway, so every year they make a big deal about the Python Challenge. Every year they announce the results at the end. And every year it's like they get 200 pythons. The problem with that is there are already hundreds of thousands of pythons and every mama python lays a minimum of 100 eggs. So the pythons obviously are destroying us in the Python Challenge. We should never have challenged them. They're winning. But right, anyway, how many people die in each year in the Python Challenge? That's a good question. I don't know. They, we don't keep track. <laughs> so anyway, like I say, we should challenge an animal we can beat, like manatees. We have shown we can beat the manatees in the challenge. They are not up to it. But the pythons are killing us, and it, it's a disaster. So anyway, that also struck me, and I always knew that I wanted to include that in a book. So I had the the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters, the Python Challenge, and then um, just the whole social media thing. I have a 23-year-old daughter, and she she's always showing me TikTok videos. And I'm always amazed, like when she says, okay, this person has 17 million followers, you know, and it's something I never, you know, and it's just somebody doing a dance or whatever. So I think that that's this whole dynamic that I can go So anyway, it came up with this idea of basically the, these guys who are like, they want to be the Skunk Ape Research Headquarters. They aspire to that. They're, they're way below that on the chain of, of sleazy roadside attractions. And so they want to invent this creature and then, then they want to get them on TikTok and then they want to get in it, they want to get famous that way and get rich that way. So they, they create this creature, which is the, they're going to be their answer to the Skunk Ape. Uh, and this is going on at the same time as the Python Challenge and there's a presidential candidate coming down. And then there's a love story involving a woman. Who, the other thing that I, I, I talk about in the book is, is buried treasure, lost treasure. Because there's all these legends about 
treasure in the Everglades. There are people still out there to this day looking around for various forms of treasure. So I threw a treasure story in anyway. And all that came together. And then the trick is like, you know, how can you bring all those things together in some way that's funny and crazy, but also vaguely believable given, you know, the structure you've created? And then how do you get everybody back out of there and kill the bad guys and all that stuff? So... Yeah, it's funny. As you're mentioning this, like I'm thinking of the different scenes where you, like even, so one thing I could say is basically in the first chapter or very early in the book, you know, one of the main characters encounters a python. So now I see where this comes from. And that kind of her and her sort of boyfriend's interactions with this python situation revealed a lot about their story as it unfolds through the rest of the book. And then of course, there's the equivalent to the skunk ape monster and and so on. So it's interesting to see then how your creative process took these aspects and made a story out of it. It's interesting then how they all intersect in the middle. And of course, I'm very fond of the love story part of it. Yeah, that, that, I I really wanted there to be um, some heart in the book, you know, not just... Sometimes when I read novels that are really funny, but also really kind of edgy, everybody in the book, in the end, you don't care about. I mean, they're they're funny, they're crazy, whatever, but there's no like heart to it. It's just like they constantly do funny things and say funny things. And um, I always like to have a love story just to give some soul to the book and have you care about something, <laughs> you know? Like yeah, that. it's interesting. Like the characters are on a spectrum, say, where you like and know more about some characters than others. And I think the challenge in a humor book is to make them not cartoonish. Uh, exactly. Which- you clearly don't like for every character. Do you write like a backstory, whether that enters into the book or not? Um, there are authors that do that. Maybe that's a good thing to do. I, I'm too haphazard for that and too eager to get writing really than than at. But what I do sometimes do is like in this particular book, there's a guy a character named Brad who turns out to be an important guy and in, in the love story and everything. But in the beginning, he wasn't. I didn't know he was going to fall in love with, you know, Jesse, the, the, the woman. And so, you know, I wrote him kind of one way and then like along about a third of the way through the book, I, I realized, Hey, wait a minute, he's falling in love with her. I need to go back now and figure out a little bit more about who he is and what kind of person he is and what, how he would talk. Cause it wouldn't be quite the same as I had him talking. He was more of just a throwaway character. So that I didn't do the research ahead of time, as you're mentioning, I didn't do the backstory. But once I kind of realized who he was going to be in the book, I went back and gave him a little more, um, a little more backstory, which is, it's a weird thing. And when I used to, before I wrote any fiction and I would hear novelists talk about that, uh, how characters evolve. And then you suddenly realize a character that you, you thought was one character is becomes a different kind of character becomes more or less important. You know, they kind of like they have a life of their own, although obviously they don't. They're coming out of your brain, but it really does happen. You just, you don't always, at least I don't always know what the characters are going to be doing. I wonder if it's because, like you said, each character obviously comes out of your brain. And so to some extent, there's something in you that fuels the life and soul of each character. And maybe there's, like with Brad, at some part of the way, the journey of writing this novel, there was a little bit more of you in Brad, because you've done this before. Like in Insane City, the main character falls in love with someone who's quote unquote out of his league. Right. And similar with 
Rad. You're 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 actually going way close to my psyche now, James, because that that always has been me. The you know the, the guy who is like any any really gorgeous woman, I think that's I have no shot with that one. You know, so yeah, that's that's I can I can connect with that character very easily, and I guess you're right. That's what I tend to do. Yeah, so like Jess comes along, who's perfect, and uh, of course you as Brad would figure, oh, she's never going to like me. There's nothing I can say. There's no small talk that's good. And so now you're infusing Brad with all of your insecurities yep. and desires around what's going on in this relationship and so on. But he's absolutely right in the book. You know, even when I was writing anything, she's really not interested in him yet. You know, she, I know in my mind, I know at that point she's going to become, but she's really not. She is so busy with her. She's got her baby to deal yeah. with and these guys after her and she's, so she's got some worry. So like, he's just sort of there and it's nice that he's there because he bails her out. But, but she's not thinking at all in terms of him as a romantic interest, at least for most of the book. Whereas he is like just smitten. Yeah. The other guy who's kind of me in the book, I, I have a character that I, I'm quite fond of, but I knew from the beginning was going to be me, there. Let me guess. Phil. Yeah, of course. Phil. <laughs> he's, I, I like to have newspaper people in books because I was one for many, many years. And it's the, the business I know the best, and I know a lot of newspaper people. And so Phil is a he's an alcoholic, retired, not really retired. He was fired because he was a drunk, but really good newspaper reporter in Miami. And I love that. I love him and and what and he's also a dad. And the part I really connect with with Phil is the the part where you're a dad and you want to do right by your kid. And you know, he's he's got no money and he's kind of desperate, which drives him to do some really strange things in the book. Um, but he becomes, he's my, he's the one who all the way through while this, all this madness is going on, knows how stupid it all is. He, he's sucked up in it. Can't help, but he, get, I get to through him comment on the, the stupidity of a lot of internet stuff and that kind of thing. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. 
Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. And I, and I want to get to the internet stuff. That was fascinating how you brought that in. But if you don't mind talking about it, Phil also seems to be related to other people you knew, you grew up with and knew from childhood. Like, how much did that play a role in, you know, even some of the final scenes with, with Phil and his daughter is very touching. I'm just curious what role that played. Well, I have alcoholism in my family. My dad was an alcoholic. He recovered um, and uh, he spent the last... Um, most of the, the end of his life, very active in AA, and he worked in the New York State prison system with you know, setting up alcoholism programs. So he ended it ended up, you know, a, a good alcoholism. If there is such a thing, story with my dad, but I was I saw the bad bad side of alcoholism through him. So that was I used that the way you use things for that the, this the scene at the end of the book where he has to confront his you know what it's what he's doing to his himself and to his family. So I drew on that extensively. Well, did any of it um, really bring back? Did you have- yes. Yeah. I don't usually get emotional um, writing. You know, usually when you're writing, you're, you're too focused, uh, or you're so focused on what specific technique you're using, what word you're using, you know, how this all fits into the plot, all the things you're thinking about that I almost never get emotionally involved. But I, I, I cried like a baby when I wrote the scene at the end that with Phil and his daughter, um, I mean, I just really, cause I remember I had a, in like, I had a moment with my own dad where, you know, we, we had a connection like that, you know, where he was basically my dad apologizing to me. And, uh, because I had, uh, you know, I had tried to, you know, get through to him when he was in his, and you know, when he was getting bad and, and my mom asked me to go to talk with him. And, and I did, you know, I went talk with him and it, you know, he was still a drunk at the time and they're very good at deflecting and denying. And that's what he did. He was a very smart guy. And I was his kid and what, you know, I wasn't going to, that, that, that relationship was going to change just because I, I was concerned, but he, in the end, you know, when he got through all that and recovered, you know, he, he brought it up. It's a part of his recovery, part of the 12 steps where you go and, and and make amends to the extent that you can with the people you, you hurt along the way. And so I was totally, I mean, that's right where I was when I was writing, writing the scene about Phil and his daughter, I was thinking about me and my dad. And so that was, I don't, I don't think I've ever um, felt that emotional writing anything as I did writing that scene. Do you think, do you think that's a function of, I mean, you, you've been writing for, Decades, like since when did you start as a columnist? Like in the seventies, during right? the American Civil War. <laughs> like you were no, a long you, time, the early seventies. And do you feel like I feel like lately, like for instance, your 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 last book, Lessons with Lucy, you're very reflective in that. Do you think now in your writing there's this more reflective component? I mean, you're always sharp and observational, and you know, reflective. But I feel like now you're you're taking it another level. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I hope I don't get serious because that's not really what I'm supposed to be. And that's, no, you can get serious all you want. <laughs> no, no. I mean, in my writing, I don't want to get that serious. Oh. I don't mind getting serious and discussing about it, discussing it with you. But, it, but yeah, you're right. I, I think I'm I'll just. It's partly I, I think, be just getting older. You, you tend to, to be more reflective, but also. I've just reached the point in my career, I've been writing so long that I am secure enough. I'll never be secure. I don't think anybody who does humor for a living is ever secure, but that, you know, I'm secure enough that I don't feel like I have to always every second be amusing, that I'm allowed a little bit of space to say, this is what I actually think, you know, and this is, this is, this is how I actually feel, not just the facade of this is what I think is funny about this. So yeah, I think I'll become more reflective. Although I cannot stress this enough. I, I don't ever want to be just a reflective. I want to write, I want people to laugh when they read what I write. I still but you want know, that. I think though, this is where this security comes in. And you mentioned no one's ever fully secure in the humor business. You're always asking like, was that funny? You know, even, yeah. you know, speaking of Seinfeld, his last book, the title was something like, is this good? Or I forget the exact title now, but it's sort of like even him questioning. Yeah. His, like they all do. Like they all do. Yeah. But I'm wondering if you can be secure in the fact that you are just an, a, a naturally funny person and a skilled funny person. Like you've been doing this for a long time. And so that you could write about, I feel you could write about anything and Dave Barry, the humorist, is going to come through. Yes. I, I mean, I agree with you that I have developed a skill over the years where I can make almost anything funny or at least serviceably funny, professionally funny, uh, if not necessarily inspiredly funny. but. Um, yeah, I mean, was that really a question, or you're just saying? <laughs> no, I, 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 I think I'm just, I think I'm just saying that because it, it makes me think of like stand-ups, like, like let's say Chris Rock's recent special where he talks about the slap with the slap heard around the world, or yeah, even yeah. Louis C.K.'s recent specials where he was canceled and out of, you know, seemed like out of the business, and then he comes back and he's able to talk about it, but still the humor shines through. Yeah. Yeah, where you don't feel quite as obligated to just have a joke that comes out of nowhere. It yeah. can be coming from you, be part of you. And I, yeah, I think that that evolves over time. But by the, you know, like when you're my age, that's kind of what you are. And you know, I am this guy who's been doing this forever and I have this certain voice and I can't really get out of it <laughs> if I wanted to. Well, which is which is fine. So so you've written like 50 books about, let's say about two-thirds nonfiction, one-third fiction. I don't know the exact number. I didn't count them or anything. Something but, like that, yeah. And for some people, they take five, six, ten years writing their magnum opus book and and whatever. And how long did it take you to write Swamp Story? About I'd say nine months. Nine know, months. If so I'd, yeah. If I'd done nothing else and I mean just really focused on it. It would have been maybe four or five months. Yeah, and I think that is the correct time, amount of time to write a book, actually. Like <laughs> you know, six I, years, you change as a person. Sometimes that's I, too I, long. You're preaching to the choir here. Um, I'm a newspaper guy. My wife's a sports writer. She writes like 10 stories a day, it feels. She just came back from the NCAA, and I'm watching her. I'm sitting way up in the stands, and I'm watching her down there with the ball in the air. And we still, if it goes in, it's one story. And if it misses, it's another <laughs> story. And she's got to turn that story in, in in three minutes, you know, and I watch her do that. I've watched her do that for years now. She's just an amazing writer. You know, she can do that. I, I, I could never do it. She's done. So anyway, that, that is like, I see her do that. I wrote, I wrote 
for many years for newspapers. Then I wrote columns and, you know, I always had something to do. So that's the mindset I come from, the journalism mindset where it's not the end of the world. You got to get it. You got to write it. You got to get it in there. Now you take a little more time with a book, obviously a lot more time really, but it's still in the end, you're just writing words and you're going to turn them in. So that's the, that's the mindset I come from. I know a lot of novelists. I'm in a rock band of authors, and some of them are quite serious novels, who take years to decide what their next book's going to be. And then, you know, sometimes years to research it and so on. And I don't disrespect that. That's just where they come from. And, you know, they write a different kind of book than I do, I guess. Um, I could not possibly take that long to write anything. I would feel like I'd written it 40 times by, by the time I was done. I one time was on a panel. One of the members of this band is Stephen King. And I, I was once on a panel with Stephen and, and everybody else in the panel besides Stephen. And I, I was only nonfiction guy. Stephen, everybody else was a novelist and Stephen. And they all were talking about their process, their process, their process. And there's nothing that serious novelists like to talk about more than their process. And it's, you know, very involved in philosophical. And it finally comes to Stephen and goes, he goes, let's do the math. You can write 2,000 words a day. That's not hard. 2,000 words. Anybody here, we can all write 2,000 words a day. 2,000 words a day, five days a week is 10,000 words a week. Okay? 100,000 words is 10 weeks. That's how long it could take you. <laughs> and everybody's going, and it's, if it had been just some schmo saying that, you know, that'd be one thing. But it's Stephen King who sold more books than everybody else up yeah. there combined. Basically, I loved him for that. You know, he he was basically saying, no, you can you can make it as long and short as you want, but in the end, there's no particular mystical reason why it has to take forever. If you know, and then he said, Hey, let's say you only write a thousand words a day. How hard is that? You know, anyway, the point he was making is let's not mysticize this process too much here. We're just writers, we're just cranking out words, telling stories. Well, like think about it from like also from the point of view of a newspaper writer, you're used to writing, let's say, 500 publishable words a day. So like you write a, a five to 700 word column, it's publishable. So that means that gives you confidence that every day, it's not just like you wrote for the day and you're going to rewrite it later. Like that's going to be out there for everyone to see. And to his point, it's just math after that. Like, yes, exactly. You know, you, you can write a book fast. And then, and then of course, there's there's drafts and revisions. So that might take the additional amount of time. You know, it's not like a second draft or third draft. Like Swamp Story, I'm assuming, went through 10 revisions of some sort or, or more. But like, I don't know if you've read how many of Stephen King's books you've read, but he's also a prolific writer. And I remember one of his shorter novels, because he says 100,000 words is a novel. That's a big novel to read. But like one of his shorter ones is The Longest Walk. He wrote that under the name uh, Richard Bachman. And uh -huh. it's like, he takes a simple concept, which is a Hunger Games-ish sort of concept. He throws in a bunch of kids into this world, gives them backstories, and then the concept plays itself out. Like, uh -huh. so, it's, so it's not, as he sort of puts it, it's not that complicated and it becomes a great book. Like that was a great, one of his great Richard Bachman books. And... You know, I feel like I feel like that's what you need, and you need that confidence that these words are publishable, which you get from the newspaper process. Yeah, and the other thing is, it's a good gig. Novel writing, book writing in general is a good. If you are reasonably successful, you can do one every couple of years and and get away with it. And financially, you can then when you're not writing, you can go around and talk about writing, and people will pay you to do that. And it's a wonderful 
you know, some people, they hardly ever write anymore. They just go around and talk about writing and their process. And, you know, people love to hear that stuff. It's, it's an easy gig. We, I think we have to, you know, a lot of writers have, have made it like they, they need to make it seem really much more complicated and difficult than it is to justify how little they do. <laughs> Not, so, um, again, I say that's when I, in the newspaper world where I come from, you're paid to produce. So you produce and you don't think about it in terms of art or whatever. Yeah. And also you don't have to be a perfectionist. Like I asked one time, I asked this one musician once on, on the podcast, do you ever feel bad when you make a bad song and put it on YouTube and it doesn't get any views? And he said, no, because it didn't get any views. So nobody saw <laughs> it. So I could go on to the next one and people, uh -huh. if they watch that, then everything's good. Yeah. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Everybody does have a process. Like you described, okay, you saw I had this thing, this element, this element, you put it all together, throw in a thriller story, throw in a love story, because there are components that make something a thriller. Like somebody's chasing someone else, and at some point, the hero or heroine is at the mercy of the killer or whatever. So there's like elements that are in every romance or in every thriller and so on. So you can make use of those elements, and then you, you write your novel. Yes. You, yeah. It's that simple, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it takes the, the decades of experience, like being being funny and, and humorous and so on. Is there yeah, any... The, de the details are where it gets, which gets tricky, but yeah. Yeah. Like when you first started writing columns, like what, what happened? Did you submit some... Because I don't know this story. I don't know if we talked about it. Did you just start writing some humorous columns, submit them in, and they said, oh, this is, guy's really funny. Let's, let's go with this. Like what happened? Well, I always want, I mean, I, it, I always wanted to write humor. Even when I was a kid, that's what I wanted to do. I just never thought that would, I would be able to make a living doing it. So I never thought of it as a career. I just thought something I like to do. I love to read humorists. I was, you know, I love Mad Magazine when I was a kid. Even like Art Buckwald when I was a kid. I, I would, oh, yeah. I like the, I like humor. Uh, Buckwald <laughs> did all the Washington, D.C. Exactly. Uh, Art Buckwald was a, is, was the, kind of the dean of humor columnists when I was growing up and syndicated in a million in a million newspapers so when i was in uh, college i wrote humor columns for the college paper haverford college and i thought they were funny and my friends thought they were funny years later i went to a, a reunion and somebody had the idea this is after i had become a well-known humor writer i went to like my 25th or 30th reunion and at, at haverford college and somebody had the idea of blowing up my columns from the Haverford newspaper, student newspaper, and putting them around the gym where there was a dance that night for the reunion. And I went over and reading them and like, <laughs> they were not funny to me. I didn't get any of the jokes. It was like all in jokes from college. So anyway. Now, do you, how often does that happen? Like if you read stuff you wrote 10 years ago, 
Do you think, no, oh I'll, my God. I'll generally, no. I mean, if, if it's, if it's since I became a newspaper columnist, for the most part, I will still say, yeah, that was okay. Sometimes I'll say, yeah. And sometimes I'll think it was better than I realized at the time, you know. But this was the college, you know, the 60s, uh, a lot of marijuana humor. I didn't, you know, I didn't remember what the why I was writing what I was writing. But I could recognize kind of the the style, the goofy style, but not the, the jokes I wasn't getting. So anyway, then I, I, when I got out of college, I got a job in a newspaper, a little daily newspaper in Pennsylvania called the Daily Local News in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I was a reporter. I didn't think about being a columnist because nobody's going to hire me to be a columnist. The Daily Local News didn't have humor columnists. But um, I was a general assignment reporter. I covered fires and meetings and, you know, wrote obituaries and all the stuff you do. But because it was a little paper, you could, if you want, write a column. They had a little thing called ad lib or something like that where you could write a little column on the uh, op-ed page. And I started right away and I always wrote a humor column. And it was actually successful. People liked it at the Daily Local News. The readers liked it. So I kept doing it. And then I, I, I ended up leaving there and going to the Associated Press and I left the Associated Press and got a job teaching effective writing seminars at businesses. And for a reason, I was just unhappy at the Associated Press and... Associated Press feels like kind of bland. Like it's just kind of summaries of. I used to call it the word army. (laughs) Like they did not, they did not value creativity at all (laughs) or humor at the Associated Press. You know, the Associated Press is like, if you can correctly abbreviate U.S. Third District Court of Appeals in approved AP style, that is right. Then you're writing, baby. So it was, you know, it's as bland as it could be because what you're writing is supposed to be something that every newspaper is willing to publish. So there cannot be any hint of anything funny or original, spicy, whatever. Just couldn't be. That's, you know, they ground that out of you. So I hated it. Quit and took this job teaching effective writing seminars for business people. So now I'm out of journalism altogether, but I'm still have friends at the Daily Local News in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So I start writing longhand in hotels and in airports all the time, traveling around the country, teaching effective writing seminars, all this free time. And nothing to do. So I start writing longhand on a a legal pad, humor columns, and submitting to the daily local news where where I started out. And they started running them every week for $23.50. That's what they paid me per column to write write these. So now we're in the the mid-70s, and I've got this column that's appearing in this little paper in Pennsylvania. And people like it. It's, you know, it's getting a response. It's pretty much what I ended up writing the rest of my life, but what, what were you writing in those first columns? You know, I would do what I do now. I would make par- do parodies of uh, whatever TV commercials I thought were stupid, or or like you know, I wrote a column about writing you know ten speed bikes and why they were you know why people would choose something so that that incredibly uncomfortable. Writing about driving, anything you know, whatever daily life stuff. That you know, the kind of column I write now, but just kind of with the faux authoritative. Goofy style that I that I you know mocking newspapers because I used to work at one and mock the authority you know always as the authority who, who in fact knows absolutely nothing. Anyway, I finally got up the courage to try to see if any other newspapers would be interested in those columns, which are then just in this one paper in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and I I started xeroxing them and sending them around to other papers, and um, I got a lot of rejections, but then. Slowly but surely, some people started using them. And then the, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is right next door, which is a big, serious paper, 
an editor there liked Saul, liked him and asked me to write something for the Inquirer magazine. And I, and I did. And that's really how I started go. I got going. I wrote a, a long piece about the birth of my son, who is now 43 years old, by natural childbirth. And I made fun of natural childbirth. And it, it, it got for the equivalent of viral back then, every newspaper editor in the country was also having children by natural childbirth. That was the boomers were taking over the newspaper business. And so that, that ran a whole bunch of, so all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, because it, it took, this was a matter of years, but it, at, when it started to accelerate, it really accelerated fast. And now a bunch of newspapers, they were saying, Hey, we saw your piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Do you have any others? You know, and I started Xeroxing more and more. And then, um, I suddenly got offered jobs from the Bill of Philadelphia Inquirer and the Miami Herald. It, this is in, in 1983. And, um, and I, I took the job at the Miami Herald. And that's, that's how I got started. That's how I became a newspaper columnist. Like, how do then things become syndicated? The, well, I had a little syndicate that, that this guy had signed me up when I was in maybe 25, 30 newspapers. But then when I went to the Miami Herald, Knight Ritter Corporation, which owns the, the Miami Herald and many other news, the Philadelphia Inquirer, many other newspapers. So then they they syndicated my column and went out, and then but within a couple of years, it was in in five hundred newspapers. So it, it exploded from there. And what's funny, um, I got a call from Art Buckwald, and the <laughs> truth is, I was a, a threat to him. I was replacing my column. The I'm the I'm the young hotshot now in the eighties. And Art's the, you know, the grand old man who's been around Washington since the, the, the 50s, essentially. And I'm thinking like, oh, he's going he's gonna to hate me. He's going to hate me because there, are, there were situations where his column was being dropped and mine was being picked up in some place. I'm not saying that that was universal, but that had happened. It was happening in some places. So, he, he had, you know, I think he probably knew who I was. And he calls me up and he's like, he's like I'm, coming to, I'm coming to Miami. I want to meet you. <laughs> you know, like, and he comes down and we got, and he was just the sweetest, most wonderful, most supportive guy. And we became really good friends for the rest of his, his life. Uh, so I, I ended up like, I went from this guy I used to read when I was a kid, who was my mother's favorite writer to suddenly now he's, he's my friend and we're going out to lunch and stuff. So. I mean, that's this exciting thing. I think about growing up in a craft is that you start to meet others in the craft who you really, there's a, a lot of basis for friendship, but one of those basis is, is that they go through what you go through. So they're a columnist, they're a writer, they're a humorist. They, they, you know, and I think what's similar between you and Art Buckwald is he really staked out Washington, D.C. And yes. you really kind of staked out Florida. Like th there's, not, there's not many states or locations where like no one says, oh, this guy's a, a great Oklahoma writer. But, and even with Stephen King, even though every book has Maine in it, you know, no one says, oh, he's a, a great Maine author. But you really have like staked out Florida. You and Carl, he has, I don't know how to Carl say Carl Hyacin. Hyacin, yeah. yeah. He's more on the thriller, murder style. Yeah. But uh, you guys have staked out Florida. Like if you read Carl Hyacin, you know there's going to be, you know, you know, cocaine in Florida in the book. Yeah, and snakes. Yeah, well, Carl Carl is is a very good friend of mine. But And, and you're right. He and I, and we've talked about this a million times, how lucky we are 
<laughs> we live in this state. And it's Carl's line, it's a great line, is um, you, you don't need an imagination to be a novelist in Florida. You just need a subscription to the Miami Herald because any story, and his stories are all based in reality. I mean, he, 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 is a, he knows what he's writing about, Carl. He just loves Florida stories. They're, you know, he sooner or later they percolate in his brain law and they all become part of a Carl Hyacin novel. But and yeah, we we have this state is, and it's there have been a lot of of Florida writers. There still are a lot of writers. Just people like to write about this state because people kind of believe anything you say about Florida. And there's usually the reason they do is it because it's really kind of always believable. Yeah, and why? Why is that? Why does what? And I'm sure you asked this a million times. I like, am, and I. What makes it, Florida the, different from Tennessee? Because Tennessee's pretty crazy too, and every state's got its own craziness. But Florida seems particularly insane. Every state does have craziness, but but Florida is where they the real the real crazy people end up. A lot of states have homegrown lunatics and weird weirdos. The Florida has the the pros. The people who turn pro come to Florida to commit acts of, of weirdness, just to be here. There's a, there's a vibe. You, if you cannot find your community here, you know, weird community here, then there, it doesn't exist. Um, there are so many Floridas there, you know, you start at the bottom. Key West is like completely different from the yeah. middle part of the Florida Keys, which is completely different from the Miami, which is completely different from Boca, which is completely different from Palm Beach, which is completely different from Orlando, which is completely different from Tampa. And all of those places are kind of strange, but they're all like in this this same state that has no actual identity beyond weird communities. Yeah, and then you have the Everglades where it's just, like you it's say- It's nothing like anything else yeah. around. It's nothing like, you know, we're 20 miles, right now where I'm sitting, I'm 20 miles from the Everglades. Nothing like, you know, where I am is out there. Nothing like out there is, is where I am. It's, you know, like other states, like, you know, people will say, I'm from Texas, you know, you know, Texas is New York, whatever, you know, even people from New Jersey will express pride. People from Georgia, <laughs> nobody from Florida ever expresses pride. You know, when people say your state is really messed up, and we go, yeah, <laughs> it is a weird place. Now, it's been no, you won't hear Floridians defend it. You know, we'll just kind of go along with whatever you want to say about us. It's like God lifted up the northern united states and everybody who couldn't hang on rolled down to florida <laughs> yeah and then some of them rolled all the way to the end to key west which is like florida's florida uh yeah there is no place like this i've traveled extensively in the united states and there is no state like this one and i still wonder why is it i think it's because well a like i think about my choices i i was in new york all my life and then i moved to florida for about i stayed there for about a year year and a half but it was seemed like a natural place to go. Like I was going to choose warmer weather. So, yep. so I'm in, so now my choices are, you know, somewhere in the South or California, because uh, New Yorkers go to California and New Yorkers go to Florida. Not lately, not lately. Lately, they just come here. Nobody goes yeah. to California. No, our, I agree. Our, the neighborhood I'm in right now, um, it's New Yorkers and Californians. That's who's moved in here, and not a not a few, a lot. Anyway. Yeah, and and. Like they they don't think to go to Oklahoma, for instance, no. or I don't know Alabama. No one says, you know, now's the time. I always wanted to move to Birmingham. No, nothing wrong with Birmingham, but nobody nobody from New York moves there. But they moved to Miami, and I lived in uh, Key Biscayne, which, I mean, as you were saying, the names of the 
cities. Each city in Florida has its own kind of like character and complexion. And and same with Key Biscayne. It's like there's just one culture there, and it's different than the culture. Yeah, as Key, Bis- in, Key Biscayne is very. And- yeah, Key Biscayne is very different from Miami, right across the causeway. Yeah. It's a completely, yeah, completely different, different. Yeah. And and we don't have any unity. <laughs> and and the other thing is it keeps changing. It just reinvents itself. Every community reinvents itself, you know, every few years. So it's just not a it's never in in any kind of stasis here. And and there's always weird stories too. Like like when I go to Key Biscayne, people are like, "Oh, the last person who lived in your house they had to leave it at like one in the morning. They just packed up and everything was gone the next day. <laughs> and so like, there's always a story every place in Florida. Yeah. So it's interesting because you have a lot of material to draw from. Now, in terms of the internet, like, and you mentioned how if, you know, in the seventies, you write this column about natural childbirth and it goes quote unquote viral, which is really like an internet kind of word. And you refer to the internet a lot in your novel Swamp Story where this thing that happens goes viral, even though everybody agrees, including the people who like the story on the internet, everybody agrees it's totally stupid. Well, that was one of the points I wanted to make you know, about the whole thing was, and, and and it took me a while, and I credit my daughter for kind of educating me on this, because she's a smart person, and she's very, she's reasonably cynical because her dad is a, you know, humor columnist, and, um, you know, and she's very media savvy, and and I'm thinking like, well, don't don't people think this is this is stupid? And she goes, yeah, people think it's stupid. That's part of the charm of it. Um, but the the self awareness of the people on the uh, on TikTok, it's much more sophisticated than I think we outside we old folk think it is. Their their understanding of what's going on is very meta, and there's so many references to other things, to other things, to other yeah. you know TikTok to other TikTok. So like when when I created this phenomenon in the book that this becomes this wildly popular thing. And it's just unbelievably stupid. But the whole point was the stupidity is what made people love it. Why? Cause they could, they could bounce off that and use that. And everybody could sort of immediately connect to what the original stupid thing was. I like that. The idea that it's this, this living growing thing out there, TikTok, this mass consciousness that I, I wasn't, re- I'm not really part of it, not really aware of it, but it's huge and it's a, it's a significant part of the lives of a great many young people. And that's why I just want to involve that in the. Have you spent time uh, on TikTok, like just scrolling mindlessly? Yes. And it's it, amazing. It's and, great. <laughs> yes. And I, I keep telling, um, I have this discussion with my wife who's not into TikTok particularly, except for like every now and then she gets curated TikToks from our daughter, Sophie, that are. That you know, like the the level of creativity, considering what it, what they're working with, just a phone and a few seconds, it's amazing to me sometimes. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of idiocy and just a lot of narcissism and you know just stupid, but in there in there is quite a bit of of brilliance too. Just like if you find it, this is self indulgent, but our daughter discovered this one. I think it's actually maybe Instagram. I'm not sure Instagram. Tell me. They it's, overlap but, now, though. They overlap, yeah. But it's this woman. All she does is comment on recipes. It's TikTok. TikTok. My wife tells me she. There are these people who put horrible recipes on YouTube. I mean, just disgusting. But they don't mean them. They, they don't. They're they mean it quite sincerely. There's usually a great deal of cheese involved and baking <laughs> of cheese. You know. And there's a woman, and she just looks at this and deadpan talks about what they're doing, and it's 
wonderfully funny. I mean, it's brilliantly funny. It's performance uh, comedy, but it's just so well done. And she's just putting it out there. Like, I never heard of this woman. She, You can't go buy her DVDs or anything, but it's really good. It's very, I mean, I'm a professional humorist. This woman is really good at what she's doing. And there's a lot like her out there. And it's just so strange that this can happen now. That woman, there's no way that could happen 25 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, I know. The, the, and now there's they're, this, you, all you need is a phone. And, you know, if, if you're just the right kind of creative person, you can do an amazing amount with that phone. To your point, like it still requires skill. Like she's funny. She's doing it in this deadpan style, you know, the woman you're describing. And, yes. and she's able to, to pull it off. And a lot of people where there's this tinge of narcissism and ego, they can't pull it off. Yes. You need this self, level of self-awareness and skill. And you know, it, there's a fine line, I guess. But anyway, my wife just told me that woman has 3 million followers. So she's probably making a, you know, a decent life. Yeah. If she has sponsors, uh, you know, TikTok, I think is harder to monetize than some other media, but, but yeah, but that's just the thing. Now you could be, you know, 40 years ago, say if you were syndicated in a hundred newspapers, you were making a great living, but now she needs 3 million followers and it's still questionable if she's making a living. We don't know. We have to, we would have to know her. We'd have to think about it. But like, I always feel now if, if like Peter Parker existed now and became Spider-Man, he would be huge on TikTok. Like he wouldn't be, <laughs> he wouldn't be a superhero. Cause I feel like there are superheroes on TikTok. Like my TikTok feed, there's all these kids doing like quadruple jumps in the air or jumping off mountains and doing parkour. And they have superpowers, these kids on TikTok now. And we yes. you know this, it's a new thing. And I'm wondering what changes for writers. Like on the one hand, TikTok, you know, you're always competing for people's attention. TikTok wins in many cases. And so to what extent have you felt that writing is maybe harder to break out than like, would your article about childbirth no. be quote unquote viral in today's world? No, no. Long, the kind of thing I do, um, humor essays and longer form humor, I don't think there's much of a market for it now. There's, um, it's just much easier. If you want to write, you got to, you kind of have to go now to movies and TV. And, you know, fortunately there's a lot of good comedy shows and there's, there's, there's you know, all the streaming services and so on. There's like a, there's a need for that content. And I think that's where people like me, you know, the, the me's of today, that's where they're going. I don't think, you know, they're obviously not going to newspapers because they're dead. I mean, yeah. dead and gone. And so it's that, it's, you know, or, or TikTok, a lot of people, you know, it, trying, as you say, it's like a crapshoot to monetize it. But um, what I do now, I don't think. I mean, newspapers are interesting because think about like the AP, the Associated Press, which let's say most articles in a newspaper are AP style. Like this is what happened. This is when it happened. This is why it happened and so on. That all now could be written by AI. Just in the past month, we've seen AI. Yep be able to do it better because the AI can write in the style of a journalist and it will know more facts. And so you have yep. to sort of be either a humorist or an investigative journalist to survive in, in, let's say, next year's newspaper world, once newspapers start to really realize the capabilities of, of AI. Where are the newspapers a year from now? I don't know, man. And I wish I did know because that's, you know, my not only does my wife work for newspaper, but Many of my friends do, and my son works for a newspaper. 
They, uh, but it's it's not at all clear where they're going to be a year from now, except they're not going to be in print anymore. The real trend is no more printed, no more newspaper. You know, it's going to be on your phone now. What's going to happen to the people who only want to read it in print? You know, the older folks, they're just, I don't know. I don't know where they're going to get their news. And, and they, the, the people who read it on their phones don't read it the same way, you know. How the newspapers will, will make enough money when they're only digital is a big question that nobody has a good answer to. I think you probably have to be, you have to do something. Like one thing AI can't do is it can't have a unique human experience. Like it can't go out and find the skunk ape shack. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, yeah. It, it, and AI, I, I, I guess I should say, well, it's eventually it'll learn to do that. Eventually it'll learn to do humor. But I will say so far, like a lot of people, when, when chat GPT came out, uh, was like a month or two ago. Yeah. 90 million people sent me the same email. Hi, I told ChatGPT to write a humor column, Dave Barry style, and sometimes we would give it a, uh, a topic and sometimes they wouldn't. But I ended up reading many. I never had to ask ChatGPT myself because everyone did it for me. And I, I read all these humor columns written in my style and they weren't funny. <laughs> Just, right, there's there's still a little bit of a generic feel to it. Like you feel right, like no, yeah, it's like it kind of like it was a lot of setups for jokes and a lot of lines that sound like they came from jokes, but they weren't actual jokes. They didn't actually have. They weren't funny. They were just like like funny. They were you humoroid, but they weren't humor. You know what I would love to see, but maybe this is just particular to me. I'd love to see you take those ChatGPT versions of your columns and you rewrite them to be your <laughs> column, and then we yeah. see you know, before, after. So that kind of, sh that would be almost like an interesting lesson in writing to see the difference between the two. It'll be like, it'll like be like this song about John Henry, the steel driving man. And he, he goes up against the steam driving thing and he, he, uh, he beats it, but then he dies of a heart attack. That's, that's what'll happen. I'll go up against chat GPT and I'll, I'll be under so much pressure to be funnier than than I'll, than I'll die. Thanks a lot, James. <laughs> yeah. And I can see it. If you publish this book, you, you, you'd have, it would be split between five star reviews and one star reviews. Like the one star <laughs> reviews will all say, "Oh, the Chappie T was funnier." <laughs> yeah. What does your wife think? Like, is she gonna? What's What's a year from now in sports journalism when when Chap GPT is up to date to the minute? Well, I, I don't think it's ready to replace sports journalists, um, but the the overall the economics of newspapers now is that sports reporters traditionally were the people who traveled the most. For newspapers, you know, you get your team. If you covered the, you know, the major league baseball team, you went to eighty-one road games, um, and they don't do that anymore. Very few newspapers can send sports reporters on the road anymore. So more and more, it's, you know, the reporters have to do everything by Zoom or don't do it at all. I don't think AI is replacing sports writers yet, but it will it'll replace like games wrap ups and stuff like that. Where it really is already come into play is it real estate, you know, where it's just a matter of this uh, house yeah. and this address for this price and this, uh, um, and it sold last time for this. Those stories you don't need a human being to write those. And so, crime stories you don't you don't need a human. Financial I, I mean, stories you don't think so. I mean, like it, it it I could just see like horrendous mistakes being made on a crime story. If you're not a human being, you don't know what's, you know, like you could be very insensitive. Um, Although I'm, humans are very insensitive too. Like there's all the. Michelle tells me, my wife tells me they're using them for sports previews now and they're uh, terrible. They're terrible. Yeah, I can believe but that. But now bear in mind, she's a sports writer. So she. 
this team with this record is playing this team with this record, you know. Yeah. Hey, you're right, though. It's going to get better. It's going to get better, and, and newspapers will have to cope with that. But the problem isn't that. The, pro- the co- problem isn't producing the content. Its problem is getting somebody to pay for the content. That's where we're really struggling in the newspaper business. And I don't know if ChatGPT has anything to do with that. People aren't reading the news the way they used to. Young people don't read newspapers the way old people read newspapers. They're not as interested. No, it's true. And I, I guess the way newspapers deal with it, though, is by cutting costs. They're not going to raise revenues, but they're going to cut costs and they could do that with ChatGPT. You know, every paper in the country, except for like really every paper is laying off, even the big papers, laying off people. Small papers, they, they've laid off people to the point where a lot of them don't exist anymore. But yeah, it's a, that's cutting costs is where we're going so far. Nobody's come up with a revenue raising uh, mechanism yet. Well, I wonder if... Um... Lawyers, for instance, uh, who deal with parking tickets, they can now use AI for everything from writing the letters to the courts, to responding to them, to figuring, knowing which part of the law the police did not follow. And so lawyers are rapidly using AI for everything. Yeah. If you're talking about bureaucracies, yeah, because that's they, they exist on just cranking out BS in huge quantities, pro forma stuff. And AI is perfect for that. Now, what's What's next for you? What are you, you're obviously going to continue writing, right? So what's what's the next book? I can tell you. I actually am I'm writing. A, I'm, I'm writing, and I, I I always say this with with fear that I'll sound pompous. I'm writing my memoir. Memoirs are big now in the publishing world. Uh, people who have not really lived yeah. long lives at all. I've written sometimes more than one, but I, I talked about this a lot with my um, my editor Simon Schuster, Priscilla Payton. We, she kind of talked me into it that that, that um, I've had a kind of long, interesting career, met a whole lot of people, had a whole lot of experiences, and I'm gonna, I'm in it, I'm writing it now, I'm right dredging up my entire life here. I think it'll be great. Like, when is that going to be out? I don't know. I it's, do. I have to finish it by the end of this year. So I'm I'm into it pretty far. Uh, well, not pretty far, but I'm into it, and I don't know when they'll actually publish it. But this, but this leads to the, the kind of last question I, I wanted to have for you, which is that you've had this long career and you've met so many people in person and that you've become friends with. Like, you know, you mentioned Stephen King, Alan Swibel, and I'm sure there's a, a you know, Art Buckwald. There's a billion people, Carl Heisen. There's a billion people in between. And do you think we're losing that a little bit? Like here, you and I are talking on Zoom. Almost all my conversations with people now are via Zoom. And while that's great, I, I, we wouldn't talk otherwise. Probably, I wonder if that, if that, kind of dumbs down all interactions a little bit, or, or, or just mutes slightly all interactions a little bit. So we, in the future, people won't have the interactions you've had with people like Stephen King and Art Buckwald and so on. Well, a lot, I mean, that was largely a function of COVID that we don't, that we didn't for the last few years. But I feel like I've gotten back to seeing people in person. I agree with you that it's better, um, way, way, way better in person. For one thing, the last time I, I was uh, I was interviewed by you, I was there in person, yeah. and you concluded the interview by giving me a bill of Iraqi currency with Saddam Hussein on it. Um, now, we're not going to be able to do that this time, and I'm kind of, I'm disappointed. To be- <laughs> right, I could have given you my Fidel Castro dollar. So. Oh, gee, no, not, I, I live in Miami, and uh, oh, my, yeah. You'd be dead. My mother-in-law escaped from Cuba, so I would not be allowed to have that, um, possess that. 
Yeah, um, but I I do I agree. If your point is that it's better to be to see people in in person, I could not agree with you more. I mean, yes. I wonder how people will write if all day long all their experiences are just in their home. Oh yeah, that's yeah. You got to have presumably. Although people more and more seem to just write about what's happening online. You know, yeah, like live their lives that way. Well, Dave Barry, once again, Swamp Story, great novel, so much fun reading it. It was really just a, a pleasure to read. I hope you keep writing novels as well. But now I'm really excited about your memoir. By the way, did Art Buckwald ever write a memoir? I don't think he, he did. did. He did. No, he wrote a couple. He wrote a couple because uh, he, he different phases of his life. But um, yeah, and he wrote. <laughs> he I'll never forget. He, he inscribed his book to me. His his he wrote this. A uh, book called "I'll Always Have Paris." He had the best job in the world. He was the Paris correspondent for the Her- the Herald Tribune, and all he did was whenever like Marilyn Monroe would go to Paris, Art Buckwald would show her around, and they all you know he he had entree to all the big restaurants over there. So he just met everybody, every American per- person of note went to Paris. Art Buckwald would take them, and they became friends for life. So, but his ins- inscription to me was to Dave who missed it all. <laughs> anyway, That's he good. he did he wrote a couple of memoirs and and I hope I I I'm you're, you're inspiring me because they were I enjoyed his books a lot and I'm going to I'm going to write good one too, I think. Anyway, and I'll come and talk to you about it if I can. Well, I really enjoy your books a lot. I'm super excited now that you said you were writing a memoir. So, until next time, Dave, I I really appreciate it and once again, Swamp Story, great job, great novel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, James. Always is. Thank you. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance. Jewelry luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.